Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thank you very much and, and good morning. And I think uh, I left Poppy with a, with a, also with a Y, um, started off by uh, maybe telling us a few things just about your thoughts. Very few things. I'm the perfect person to open this because I am here because London has inspired me from the, the moment I heard of it. So my name gives away my English birth, but I grew up in Canada. And I have been living in the center of London now for exactly 10 years. I live in Holborn, opposite the Great Ormond Street Hospital. And the reason I am so inspired by London every day is because on my commute to work, I see two things. I go past St. Paul's Cathedral and a rather dusty sign for horse rentals that for 200 years no one has noticed to take down yet above my garage. And it's that combination of the grandeur and the grit living together here in London that inspires me to work here, to try and be successful here in the hopes that my contribution will also find a place over time here in London. And I'm reminded of that every day. And Stryker, I know you've been here for a number of years too and are inspired in similar ways. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, Stuart's list was, was was very comprehensive, and uh, I notice, however, he didn't mention the weather, um, but I won't either. Uh, one of the things I would underscore about what Stuart was saying is that is that what's key, I think, to making London what it is is not only that that wonderful list of things, but how all of those things interact. Uh, and he mentioned the the interaction between culture and business, but it's between it's between cooking and, uh, and financial uh, speculation. It's between financial innovation and cultural innovation. All of these things, I think, interact with one another in, in, an, in an explosive, a good explosive way. I'd just like to explain, we'd like you involved as soon as possible, but just to keep us all honest, does anyone here not live in London? One person. Two, two people, three, three people. Okay, so, so we are, <laughs> we do have to convince people who aren't already convinced of, of what we know is to be true. We have people at the front with microphones. Um, if they could stand up and just watch the audience, I'm going to introduce the panel and put out one question. But from the get-go, from now, could you wink and nudge to the people with the microphones if you've got something to add? And please feel free to tell us what inspires you professionally and creatively about London, but also introduce yourself. And if you're directing your question to someone specific, uh, just make that clear. So let me introduce the panel. Starting on the very end, we've got Harvey Goldsmith. He's chairman of Ignite. Beside him, we have Gwyn Miles, director at Summer House, Somerset House Trust. And then oh, Nick, as he's, uh, as he's known, uh, Kenyan, <laughs> managing director at the Barbican. And beside me, um, we've got Stephen Barber. He's group managing director at Pick and C. Now, I wanted to ask you, and you can, you can raise each other to answer the question first, but how dependent is creativity on prosperity? Because we know that, that the UK faces real challenges in the years to come now. Um. Harvey. To some extent, I think prosperity is um, negative for creativity. Why? Because I think that creativity thrive, should thrive and has thrived historically when things are difficult. And um, I think in this, particularly in my main field, which is music, um, 
as much as our business, the business side of, of the industry is thriving, or certainly the live part of it, um, I'm sorry to say, but I think the creative side of our of music is not thriving. And I think that's probably because um, there's too much money around and there isn't there doesn't seem to be enough logic to to write um, compelling music about difficulties which um, which certainly happened in the 60s and the early 70s um, and actually create new ideas and stimulate. So Stephen, the next few years will be bad for the banks but perhaps good for certain creative industries. I mean, Probably how do you way around. to make, make it clear that I'm, although Picte is a bank, it's not the kind of bank that most of you... <laughs> I mean, I, four years ago, I remember standing up, we launched the Pre-Picte, which is a big uh, global photography prize, and I remember saying to the audience of, I mean, it's mostly arts people, and saying that, you know, I'm going to say a rude word here, and they sort of waited, and I said to banker, you know, and everybody laughed, and it's four years later, and it's still, it's even ruder than it was then, <laughs> you know. Um, I agree with Harvey, actually, that um, I think that, you know, too much money is bad. It's, ba it's, it's not good for, um, I'll use the word creative, um, Instead of wonderful, arts. wonderful. I think it. I, I, yeah, I think um, uh, it's. Um, I, I, look, that's not a that's not a blanket statement. But I think it's. I think there's there's. Um, you get you, there's too much and not enough quality. I mean, it's it's it's. Um, in London today. Um, I mean, we have, I mean, if you go around the city here, you'll find offices full of art, art that is bought by Diego, you know? You have art consultants that take commissions and will just put stuff on your walls. And, um, you know, it's easy. Let's put 1% of the cost of this building onto there. And, I mean, you don't see a lot of great art on the city walls. So I think it's, um, you know, we can, but we should focus on what's great. It would be interesting to see if, if, if Gwyn and Nick think that there is such a thing as too much money for each of you? Um, <laughs> well, After you. I, I don't think of it like that. I mean, no. I'm, I run a creative business. I don't think there's a um, polar apart between business and culture. I, I, what inspires me in London is going to work in Somerset House, which is the best building in London and is absolutely fantastic. I'm very lucky, but I also am very lucky because I run a business with 30-odd tenants from the creative industries or cultural industries who also like being there, and it actually is working as a, a community in the middle of London where you know we, we are quite business-like about what we do, and I then run a cultural programme, but I have to be business-like in doing that because I don't get government funding. So um, I, I, I think that the creativity I see is not so much about people composing and doing that kind of thing, which I agree with you, probably works better in adversity, I don't know why, but I see people being very creative about what they do in, a, in, in, the, in the world we live in. I would say it all depends where the money goes. 
let's face it, what has happened in the music business in recent years is a complete turmoil through the throwing up of all the jigsaw pieces into the air because of questions about rights, distribution, record companies no, failing to get their to do business with, model together. That and has nothing to do with creativity. It does. It, it does should make because it even... the health of the industry underpins creative work. And that's what I mean by it depends where the money goes. Because, for instance, the city has decided alongside its support of financial services to invest the significant amount that Stuart was talking about in cultural activity. And that has enabled a load of things to happen that would not otherwise have happened. So I think what I'm just saying is you need a financial support for creativity which underpins that activity and enables artists to do freely what they do. But there's always been financial support. Um, it used to be called patronage. Yes. And patronage supported the, supported the arts from time immemorial. So um, that's nothing new at all. The difference is that the traditional form of patronage, which was individual giving from very wealthy people, um, hasn't gone away. It's still there, but it's become much more corporatized. And what, to me, has happened is that with that money... Um, flowing around, um, the demands on that money are completely different yes. from what they were before. And so consequently, um, if you go back to the 17th, 18th century, when, or even the 16th century, patronage of the arts was purely to allow those artists um, to give their interpretations in whatever form it was, mainly it was, it was obviously painting and so on, uh, little music. Uh, in the early days, but it, it was allow it was to allow the those those pearls of wisdom of expression to come out. Today, with corporate patronage, there are a list of boxes you have to tick before they give you the money, and then they want to know what where it goes and and the results. And then you'll get things like the Cultural Olympiad, which, to be quite frank with you, is the biggest crock of shit I've ever seen in the whole of my life. And the singularly biggest waste of money that I've ever seen in my life, purely because it just ticks boxes. And it's completely irrelevant to 99.9% .9 of the public. And there's an opportunity of somewhere up to £100 million being literally tipped into a dustbin because of the whims of people who are ticking boxes and quite, quite frankly are irrelevant to our world. I think we sense a stirring in the audience, <laughs> in the and public. I think we've got one right there, if you don't mind just saying where you're from. Kirsty Lang, Front Row, Radio 4. I want to take issue with you, Harvey. I've just spent the last few months in New York, which is a fantastic city. Uh, however, as a dedicated theatre-goer, I missed accessible, affordable, exciting theatre, um, which we have in London, down to one thing, public subsidy. Uh, like two or three of the most exciting shows on Broadway at the moment, which have been nominated for Tonys, have come out of the National Theatre thanks to subsidy. Um, it may be one case for the, for the music business, but I do not think that poverty and lack of subsidy encourages good theatre. Also, can I just say that as a, uh, a mad theatre-goer, I'm very excited about the Cultural Olympiad. I think there's some fantastic 
What, what uh, is the li- there, there's, there's some great what is going shows on in coming the Culture up. Olympiad that wasn't already happening, irrespective of the fact there was an Olympics or a Cultural Olympiad. Well, have you because been to any of the things at the Globe recently? The sh- International the, Shakespeare the Festival? Shakespeare Absolutely Festival fabulous. was planned, I think, before the Olympics even came into being. The, it wasn't actually. The Hockney exhibition was happening irrespective What about of the Lyft Festival of Experimental Theatre? There are what things coming it? from all over the world that would not that have happened. every year. Not nearly on this scale, and I go every year. Okay, so... I mean, happened. we could carry well, on. So what a but scale. I just want to disagree. That's not the issue. And the issue about, about sponsorship and, and wealth is what we're talking about today, is, as I said before, Patronage has always existed, and, but patronage, to some extent, allowed expressionism to have much more freedom. Today, corporate sponsorship, because of wealth, is there in a, two, a much more of a two-way process, where the demands from the people who are giving the money is that much higher than it ever was before. And to me, that is... Um, diluting the value of, of creativity. I bet you anything the Borgias had boxes to be ticked in their own way. They might probably did, but not. But look what came out of it. If those were terrible boxes, then I bow to the floor to them. <laughs> can, I, can I just ask each of you to get a, a clearer sense of exactly where you're coming from? For you, in a nutshell, a few words, what are the hallmarks of Brand London? And I, I want to then explore later how that differs from the rest of the UK. I mean, Harvey, for you, what are the hallmarks of London? Well, um, I was born in London. I've lived, except when I'm on a plane, um, in London all my life. Um, I'm extremely proud of London. I think the hallmarks of London is we probably have the best talent in the world, certainly emanating out of London. We do have the best backroom boys that do it. We have the worst governments that we've had since God knows when. We have a I think, as long as I can remember, a preeminent system that whenever something like a Cultural Olympics or the Millennium Exhibition or uh, whatever that goes on in London, government goes out of its way to hire or to encourage the good, the great, and what I call the useless to actually run them, um, instead, instead of um, actually going out and reaching out to the fantastic pool of talent that we have in London, and it does it with absolute alarming regularity, and that's the downside. And the other downside of what is probably the most spectacular city in the world um, is the fact that we... We have layers of what I call grey people who are there to say no. And basically, whenever you go and see them, the answer is no, what's the question? And that's, I deal with that on a daily basis. On a positive note, <laughs> I think the good thing about London is the sense of serendipity and the fact that it is a mishmash of lots of different people who mix and do things that you don't expect. So I think the best thing about London is its sense of unpredictability, and it's at its best when it's unpredictable. Well, as a, as a Mancunian, I, I have to dissent from Peter's view that London is a complete bubble on its own. I think there are absolutely spectacular things happening in Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool, uh, but London is you unique and the things that make it for me are energy, diversity 
and that absolutely typical modelling through, which is a British characteristic and our inability to really grasp things like urban planning. I mean, Gwynne's got an absolutely fantastic example <laughs> of, a, of a place that has been grasped and, and turned into a wonderful space. The pedestrianisation of the north of Trafalgar Square is another really good example of a decisive act that worked. But there are 20, 25 other things that ought to be being done to London and, and I agree with Harvey just to the extent that we ought to have taken more opportunity from the Olympics moment to do some of those things. Uh, I obviously don't agree because we've got so much going on that is directly funded and prompted by the Cultural Olympics that that's worthless. Uh, the, the crowds who packed out Einstein on the beach at the Barbican, uh, Complicite at the Barbican, will pack out Peter Sellers, Winter Marsalis and Lincoln Centre Jazz. Those are the things that make London special around this time in 2012. Stephen, what's London for you? Well, I'm, I'm a Londoner. I grew up in <coughs> the 60s in London. The 70s I was a teenager. And, my God, it was a grey place. Yes. It was a great, the Barbican was there, yes. the South that Bank was, was there. It was, it's still <laughs> grey, but Grayish. it's a lot better yes, yes. in colour. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, it was grim. I mean, you know, Sundays were dead. Um, the streets were filthy. The buildings were blackened with smoke. Um, the, uh, I mean, I used, to, I used to go up to King's Road and walk up and down, and that's, that's about the only thing you could do as a teenager. There was nowhere else to go. Um, the whole areas of separate areas of London have developed and become, you know, transformed. I think of, you know, we have an office here in, 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 in uh, Moorgate, and just uh, if you go, just a, you know, I, I, I go on, you know, sometimes Friday lunchtimes into Hoxton a bit beyond with mm. um, with Jenny Walwyn, who with, with whom we've built a collection of contemporary art for the office, and it is extraordinary what you can find there, just within a sort of walking distance, the artist right. studios, and, the other. and they're not, you know, some of them are English or Londoners, and a lot of them are not, but I think that, um, for me, I mean, if I go back just to the example of the, the pre-picte which we've built here, which is, um, we've done exhibitions all over Europe in the, the, the so-called great capitals of Europe, and, you know, I'm, I'm, that experience is, you know, I'm struck by how, how parochial these other cities are. I mean, really, I mean, think of Paris. I mean, Paris, we, we say here that London has always been this great kind of melting pot of culture and business and so on, but, you know, or finance. Finance, yes, but, you know, you went to Paris in the 1920s and 30s. You didn't come to London, I think, um, for, for art and music and literature and so on. You go to Paris today, and we've done 10 exhibitions there, and it is so parochial, you know. Everybody you deal with is now. I love French is it the people, pace? but is it the pace? no, everybody's French, and they all reinforce their own. No, but it's <laughs> not, not true of it's, 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 it's not true. It's not true of London, and, and I, I think you know the sort of thing that we are. I think we are much open, and I'll give you one example if I can. Um, you know, we we were on the business side. We were doing a conference in Dresden, and. Um, I was thinking, who shall I? We, we we had a dinner in the in the Phaeton Museum, which is this not sorry factory, which is mm -hmm. this great glass car factory, which is you know spotlessly clean. And I asked Martin Roth, who was the director of the Dresden Museums, there to to give us <coughs> a talk. And we got to know him. And you know, here he is. Um, 
head of, well, I mean, maybe the greatest museums in, in Germany. I'm a senior cultural figure there, and um, we got to know him. And what should happen? But he turns up as director of the DNA last September. And um, I think he's, you can tell me perhaps, Nick, but he's maybe the the only foreign director of a serious museum. Sorry, I think somebody, somebody in, up here might have a phone on. In London. And, and it's not mine. I've turned it off twice. <laughs> and what, and, and you know, so, so, so here is, here is a German innocent. cultural figure who's come here who's, who's telling these, um, this great museum with all the curators saying, hey, you don't realize what you've got here. Look at what we could do with this. Look at, and, and... Do you think the same applies to... I don't, it doesn't apply the other way around. I mean, I think that... I mean, there's an occasional example of, you know, Simon Rattle or something, but, you know, Paris, all these other cities, Milan, Madrid we've been to, everybody is local. So I think that's the great thing about London, is that international diversity of, you know, experience. And so here is what we put to the audience. <clears throat> Are these things Sorry. good enough for London now? But isn't New York the same? It's not to the same extent. I think. Let's hear from the and audience. I think, you know, but the same thing applies as we, I mean, for, people always talk in, uh, for finance and business and trading, it's, you know, it's the time zone, and it sounds rather trite, but it's, it is absolutely true. You know, it's the most convenient place to be sure. if you want to talk to America, if you want to talk to the Far East, and the same applies to the, to the arts and culture. We have somebody in the audience. Yes. Um, Sally Taylor, the Culture Capital Exchange. Um, I would actually argue that the greatest um, sub people who subsidise the arts in London are, in fact, the artists themselves. Um, Harvey, for example, all the young unsigned bands who spend all their time doing things like the Camden Crawl, who eventually get found, the people, Gwyn, who you happily support in your um, vaults in Somerset House, who may or may not in the end end up on Stephen's walls, Nick, the people who come out of the Guildhall School and have got to grasp a living somehow before they finally become the principal flautist of the LSO and let's not forget the fact the Olympics decided it wasn't going to pay musicians because they should actually do it for the love of it however they're quite prepared to pay the consultants and the technicians and Sebco and all those people I think that's outrageous and I think that actually we ought to really understand that it is the artists who are subsidising this city and be more aware of what this city can offer to them at the beginnings of their careers thank you Well, I, I think I'd just like to add a point on that and I agree with you wholeheartedly what you say uh, particularly with the Olympics. I, I think it's actually insulting that um, their position is that all the artists can play for free, but every other bugger that works for the Olympics, including the train drivers are getting their bonus and the bus drivers getting a bonus, actually turning up to work, all get paid at least minimal, if not maximum, amounts of money. But I think, I think on the, just back to what you're saying about artists. Uh, really being, this, it's always been that way. And I, I remember when the wonderful arts lottery grant was created and all those millions poured into it to so-called go to the arts. Well, the only people it didn't go to were the people that actually needed it because in order to fill out the forms that one had to do, if you were a struggling artist or a performer or painter or sculptor that actually had a reason for having that money, 
um, you couldn't do it because you literally could not fill those forms out. The barrier was so high that they just said, we're not bothering, so where did the money go? Where it always goes to the people that don't really need it, don't know what to do with it, and particularly waste it. Here, we have another question over here on the left. No, it's not so much a question. A statement I, by Geraldine. Okay, it's Geraldine Sharp Newton, um, acting president of the Media Society. I'm a former New Yorker, and I have now lived here for almost 30 years. And this is a magical city. This has, around every corner, something wonderful happening. New York does, but not in the same kind of way and not with the same kind of vitality. And also, the fact about cost. We can go to theater here in pubs, in magical places, and one never thought there would be theater. I can see, you know, I can sit with 20 people and listen to modern, new theater. And I'm just, I think it's delightful. I think the thing that saddens me the most, though, is how this country, the whole country, the whole UK, does not embrace London. It is always angry at London. It feels that London gets too much. And I think that's a great disappointment. And I think it's across the media. I just don't see enough love and respect for this great city, frankly. Do you think that London is competitive enough? I mean, we've heard words like magic and extraordinary and the serendipity that you experience on a daily basis here. But considering the change that the Western world and Western Europe is going through now, is, is that enough or does London need to focus? I mean, some of the strongest brands in the world are, are strong and recognizable because they simplify things. I mean, London's about diversity and serendipity and change and magic and the unexpected. Can it continue to be uh, as strong a brand in years to come when, when there's so much uncertainty around? Gwen. Well, the answer to that is I don't know. <laughs> I would think it will, yes. I mean, my feeling is that there's a, there's a whole vitality that's churning away with London, which will continue to do so, and I, I don't see why that should stop myself. Nick? But we have a question over here on the left. Well, I'm afraid it wasn't so much a question as a statement. I keep wanting questions. Yes. But I think um, the unique um, thing about London, and London, I think, is a strong brand, whereas the UK is a rather fuzzy one. The country brand for the UK is very difficult to state, you know, compared with what America means to people across the world, or even what France means to people across the world. But London is very clear. London is super city for the rich. And that's very clear to everyone in the back of beyond. It is the rich super city. It may be a slightly difficult or embarrassing uh, thing to deal with, but that's what it's all about. If you are one of the five Malaysian billionaires, you will know that you have to have a house here, preferably on the Grosvenor Estate, and you will know that you have to have your money looked after here, and you will know that the guy who runs your family private office will very likely be located in London. That's what's special about London, uh, and it's, you know, it's a difficult thing for us to deal with, but it's a very, very clear international luxury brand which the Frankfurts of life have no way of ever approaching. I don't actually. Um, I think it's a good point, and, it's, and you're correct to some extent. But actually, I don't agree with you on an overall basis. Um, 
as much as I decry London, I decry it because I love it so much, London is a very special city because it has everything. And it is, it is yes, has become a city for the super rich, but actually it's also a city for everybody because, as was said just now, there's every nook and cranny of London. There are streets that, you know, which is the one of the magic of side of being in London, there are streets that go across, over, under, upside down, over the top, in different angles, where you can find, as you walk around London, the most extraordinary things that go on uh, in people's houses, in upstairs, in pubs, in bars, in restaurants, in terms of creativity and art and so on and so forth. That is the magic in London. I just wish we could get rid of those unbelievable layers of bureaucracy and all these hurdles that could make it even better. Let's take both questions from the audience. Uh, you first, please. Judy Arnside, um, Director of UK Jewish Film. Just going back to before we um, started celebrating London and talking about the positives and the, the wealth, um, going back to, I think, Harvey's point early on, the economic crisis, I think, has fostered a lot of creative funding particularly from young people. We run um, workshops for emerging filmmakers. They're asking us, you know, what can UK Jewish Film do for them? But they, what I have seen is a lot more creative thinking. I think they won't fill in long forms and they feel exasperated by trying to find this big money. But how can we, my question, is how can we foster this creative talent for fundraising, the crowdfunding, the projects that young people are, are thinking up to get their work seen? How can we look at funding Thank you. That? Let's just take the one from the back too and then... Yeah, I'm, I'm Sebastian Scotney and I run a website called London Jazz. Most of the time I'm focusing on the jazz scene, but I wanted to pick up on Peter's point about the rich lifting themselves out of the fray and the, the, the examples of that that we have, um, that you can now bypass um, border, board, the border agency for £1,500 plus VAT completely um, when you're coming into Heathrow. I, I've been, every Sunday morning for the last 19 years, I've coached kids on a, in a, on a sports field in Richmond. And what I've noticed is that an increasing proportion of them are going to private schools. People cannot afford to live in that part of London um, without serious, well, and I'm, I'm just concerned generally about social cohesion, and I'm also concerned about the sort of the, when we see, for example, two gentlemen called George Osborne and um, Ed Balls going at each other, tribally, viscerally, angrily. I consider that that as a recipe for the tribalism and for the forces that pull apart a society and not cast giving us anything like the role model as Londoners and as Britons that we could do with. Thank you. So both of these relate to the financial crisis. How do we keep this uh, ingenuity in finding new sources of funding? And, and how will social cohesion be preserved uh, in, in, the, in the years to come? I thought that, sorry, I thought that Judy made a very interesting point or comment when she said that people were coming to her asking what her organisation could do for them. Um, and the truth is that kind of answers my statement about the lack of creativity because creativity doesn't really ask people to do it for them. They do it for themselves. 
um, and Spectre and other people go around and see it and then embellish it. And I think it's, I think we just got to a state um, with this so-called wealth being around that, and, I, and again, I see it from people who write to me for jobs and come with ideas and what all it virtually, I, I think it, I, I probably get 50 letters a month coming in, just people asking for jobs and advice and what, what can I do for them? Well, I think it should be what can you do for me? And I think that, act, that whole idealism is lacking today because of the wealth level that we have. What about the question of social cohesion? Um, I mean, if you just, where we are today and then right across the street you have Occupy, what is now Finsbury well, big, Park. Big, big, big cities around the world are clearly suffering from it, have suffered from it traditionally. There has always been this movement where life starts in the centre, it then gets old, it always moves to the west, by the way, and then the east starts to develop, the east becomes decrepit, uh, and the whole social, the wealth of, the, of those cities goes to the west, and then suddenly wakes up and says, let's develop the middle, and suddenly it all comes back to cohesion again. Nick, so we just go through something. that. Huh? Yeah. Well, I, I think wealth is a double-edged sword, and the fact that, you know, once children can't set themselves up in London in the way that we were able to when we came here a generation or two ago makes life very difficult. But the fact is that I think the young people are far more creative than Harvey's implying here, and people in the arts are exceptionally creative about finding new routes in to make what they want to happen happen. And I think one of the things which goes back to, to everything you've done, Harvey, in terms of bringing the arts out of the temples and onto the streets, which goes back to Pavarotti in the park, uh, goes back to all the open-air events at Somerset House, the, sen the sense that art doesn't exist anymore in temples which are labelled, yeah. keep out, These are, uh, this is only for those of you in the know, and we've all done our bit, uh, and some of us have you know, weightier temples than others to deal with, uh, we've all done our bit in trying to engage with young people actually where they are on the ground and to say we'll take the international talent that comes to the Barbican out into the east end of London and get them to engage with Hackney Empire, Victoria Park, Gillette Square and schools and communities and that has been one of the most important things that's happened in the arts over the last 20 years I think that process of engagement. Mm. Can I ask you Stephen a question about talent because that's where we've seen the talent drained from London over the last few years in the financial services sector. It's something I've covered day in and day out now since the crisis. <coughs> Are you, what's happening with the talent in your industry now? Are you optimistic about, uh, about being able to, to find the resources you need? Because financial services are important to London because they, they, keep, they partly keep the spotlight on London and, and, and it helps well, everybody. I if we, if we advertise a, a, a job for a graduate, we get 2,000 applications for one position and... Is that more or less than, say, seven more, years ago? Much, more. far more. It's far more. And more than half are foreign, European. More than half. And actually, very often, the best candidate is, is not English. Um, and actually, you know, the lot... I just I was thinking of this. The, if you think of the great kind of uh, every now and then there's a huge you know sort of 
rogue trader loss in the city of London. You talked about the growth of financial services. And I mean, the last English person who actually created a huge loss was Nick Leeson. That's 17 years ago. We haven't had an English person who's actually lost a fortune. A deficit we must deal with. I mean, the one that yesterday, the last week, JP Morgan was, he's Italian, I think. You know, you talked about the Italian finances on Longbard Street. Well, you know, they're back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, so no problem getting talent at all. This ties in with, I don't know if any no of you problem. saw it in the newspaper over the weekend, a BBC World poll that uh, views of China and Chinese cities are rising in esteem mm. across the UK and views of London and Western cities as an ideal place to live are actually declining. Mm. So London is up against Beijing and Shanghai. I, 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 I doubt it. And, I mean, I, I had a Chinese <laughs> candidate, Chinese, a Chinese woman came applying for a job, and I, I said, um, why do you want to come to London? And she said, because of the nature Yeah. She said, you know, you can walk down the street and you can see a squirrel. Or a fox. On a tree. Or, or a pigeon. You know, uh, and she loved the fact that we have pigeons. <laughs> no, but they have no parks in. Let's Beijing, bring in so two people from the no, audience that's here. There and it's and very and attractive. And and three then. We'll do three. Not, it's not trip for We'll do around the room. Thank, thank you very much. Imke Henkel with the German news magazine Focus, and I wanted to bring back the competition closer to to home. And the question basically is: Doesn't Wells, the Wells uh, of London, stifle also um, the art here? Uh, because recently, over the last years, more and more artists actually went to Berlin, and because it was so much cheaper there to rent studios, to rent apartments, and it's also quite a gritty city. It's it's quite a broken city, so that that brings up a lot of art. So, isn't Berlin in that way overtaking London? Henrietta Royal, um, Fanshawe Halton. I think the, the interesting thing about the UK and the London is that outside it is seen as the land of opportunity. This is the first melting pot long before America was. This has always been the place where everybody has thought, we should go, we will be successful, there is opportunity there, we can make money, we can do art, we can do all sorts of things. There are vast, vast opportunities, and people, we, we see people desperately wanting to move here. It's only us natives at the moment who seem to think that, oh, well, we're all depressed and there's no opportunity and you can't do anything. And, you know, if you come from a poor background, that you have no opportunity because they keep on getting told that. And it's just not true. And nobody seems to look at, you know, the Chinese, the Indians, everybody in Europe. Everybody wants to come here because there actually is a place of opportunity if people take it for themselves rather than sitting back and waiting for somebody to do it. And it's, what is interesting is the immigrants, of course, are the people who got off their backsides and said, there is an opportunity, I'm going to go where there is opportunity. And that's London, that's the UK. But too often we sit back and say, oh, well, you know, nobody's helping me, nobody's giving me anything, and this is a terrible place. It's not. It's a fantastic place if actually people want to grab the opportunities that are there. Uh, I'm Nico MacDonald, uh, co-author of Big Potatoes, the, the London Manifesto for Innovation, it's subtitled, uh, and speaking later on today. Um, just a, a general question is, what is London? Um, uh, I think you could argue that London stretches from Hatfield to Brentford to Brighton, perhaps even to Oxford in the west. And the city of London, obviously, is the historic heart. The rest of London, which was only united in the late 19th century, is sort of greater London, if you like. 
And I wonder, to some extent, we mentioned Paris earlier on, whether the city, where in fact I live, is somewhat ossified, even central London within the circle line, even zone two perhaps is kind of preserved in aspect and the excitement and innovation is happening outside the centre. And you know, historically, certainly that's been the case very often. Um, so I'd be interested to know what people thought London was. And then on the question of arts and creativity, I think there's two things I'd reflect on. I think it's very exciting what's happened in London with museums being free and culture being free and so on. But I wonder how much we actually go to places in order to be seen to go to things, rather than to take in the culture there, reflect on our lives, reflect on the human condition. Maybe that was always the case, but it seems to me more people can say, I've been to Tate Modern, than can say, any, name any work that simply hangs there permanently or is installed there permanently. And secondly, the relationship of arts and technology and innovation, I think, is very interesting. Because historically, artists have often been the sort of vanguard, if you like, of technological innovation, have experimented with new uh, technologies and materials and forms and found new ways of doing things with them that have then led to the creation, indirectly, of new industries, new economic growth. And um, uh, Nick will obviously be familiar with the Bauhaus exhibition at the Barbican. The Bauhaus inspired, in some ways, many developments that are still rolling out today in our lives in terms of use of materials and technology and uh, you know, space and so on. So you know, is the connection between the arts, not in an instrumental way, and, and technology and innovation as strong as it used to be? Could I connect that point with the Berlin Please. remark? But, um, the problem with Berlin is it doesn't have any business. You know? yeah. Nobody's got any money. You can get a cheap apartment, put your, you know, for your studio, but there's nobody to, you know, support you. It's that. I mean, that's fundamental. And I, I but I, just to, to connect with what you said here, I, I have a very good friend who moved to Berlin some years ago, and I was had dinner with him the other night, and I said, what, what, what's the difference between you know living in Berlin and London? He was at London, and he he said, you know. In, in Berlin, they still have this idea of high culture. You know, this, here it's all gone sort of demotic and, you know. Uh, well, is that, I'd like to ask, is that a good thing or a bad thing, you know? Actually, personally, I think it's a good thing. I think it means that, you know, people do go to the Tate Modern to say they've been there. And they do have, you know, we do have the crowds. It does bring in the money. But it doesn't eliminate that idea of high culture. I think we still have that, but I think we have both. Yeah. Mm. I don't know what other people think. Just, just on one point, I think it was true that artists were being forced out to the peri periphery of London, and there was a time when you could see artists in the East End then moving further out, so they, they, as, they, as the developers came in, they moved out. But I think now there are more collectives mm. working more centrally than there have been in 20 years. And mm. so I, I don't feel everyone's being completely pushed away and have to go to Berlin. I think there are, there are nooks and crannies where people can find a place to work. Berlin is a marvellous city, but it only has culture. Yeah. And that is a, is a weakness, fundamentally, and that's what makes London stronger, because the art and the culture is always inter interacting and sometimes bumping up against the business and, and the wealth. But that's what makes the cauldron so exciting, whereas in Berlin, you know, you, you've got a uh, reinvented old empty government building turned into a, a Norman Foster tourist attraction. Uh, and that is wonderful for people who go to Berlin to visit. 
streets, but it's not the substance of a great city in that sense. Now, sorry, just on the just on the what is London point, don't you feel that London is always reinventing itself, and London is always pushing at the limits of what it is, and what will define London five years from now, for instance, one of the things that will define it is a whole new transport system, uh, Crossrail, which will actually in our lifetime, big, in our lifetime, Harvey, it will happen, and it will actually make a huge difference to who can get where in what space of time, and that I think is going to make a big difference as to who goes where and where the centre of gravity is. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it because there'll be two huge crossrail stations on either side of the Barbican, uh, and so we'll be far more accessible than we have been in the past. But I think it's those sort of things and those sort of decisive acts that actually begin to define London. I think the, the strength of London is the ability to transform itself and yes. Harvey's point about I mean, I'm not sure if everybody picked up on that, about cities, how they expand to the east and the west and then the centre and so on. I think you might have read Edward Glazer's book on the triumph of the city but I mean, which is, if you haven't read it, it's, it's a wonderful book about city and London has that quality which very few other cities go to. If you go to, you talked about New York, if you go there if you wander around New York, there, I mean the I mean, you know, five minutes from Manhattan, I mean, you can find places that look as if they've been in the Blitz, you know? It's, there are part, the center's wonderful, but it's falling down New York compared with London, you know? Partly. Uh, just mm. as an aside, I was in a taxi um, um, two nights ago, and um, the driver proudly announced, he said, do you know that there are currently 11,340 different sets of roadworks going on in London. <laughs> so you should all know that. Um, some of those, I presume, will be ready for the Olympics, but um, I fear many of them won't be, because if you drive past most of the roadworks in London, there's actually no one there doing anything. They're just dumps, you know, roadwork dumps. But I, I think, to answer some of the questions, um, I go to Berlin uh, quite often, and I have to say that um, I agree with, with uh, both what Stephen and, and Nick said, of course. Berlin is an amazing cultural centre, um, is affordable, um, is slightly different, but doesn't really have a soul anymore, if it ever did. It doesn't have that cacophony of different types of businesses, of industry and all the things all going on at the same place. It's purely for culture and arts and they've done a, a fantastic yeah. job in there. Um, but it, but art, if you set that aside, it comes, um, it, it doesn't have what that kind of vibrant heart that's constantly pumping out different ideas and different things that London, of course, does have. London is unique to some extent because purely and simply because it's history, because we've been here so long. So you can go from the Tower of London, which was built as a fortress and is now as a very nice attraction, an art centre and does occasional you know, events in the boat and so on, um, as far out as it going to two places like the, the Tate Modern and hopefully what will ever happen at Battersea and the power station there and so on and so forth. Um, and constantly changes. We are very short of space in London for lots of things, but there are so many nooks and crannies that are picked up upon and made work that that is really exciting. Can I just, there's one more question in the corner here. I wonder if uh, I can just say, my name is Leslie Batchelor, I'm the Director General at the Institute of Export. 
And one of the things that I think we keep missing is the fact that um, I think there's a very big part that language plays in the, the growth and the fact that it's easy to inspire people here because people find it so much easier to communicate here. Uh, and I just wondered if we could perhaps put, throw that into the melting pot. Stephen, what do you think? You mentioned that London is geographically in, in a very useful place to be a, a global centre. How important is the language in that mix? Which, <coughs> sorry, which language? English, English language. English. As, <laughs> I wish more English people spoke more foreign languages. You know? Of course, it's much easier to. I wish more Londoners spoke English. <laughs> really useful. Particularly, I have to go to. I have to take a little pocket dictionary when I go to restaurants. Stay now, just to, to find out what I'm talking about. I think, the, I think about. the point is, yes. Yeah. I tried to try to keep it brief because I know how um, how much more people have got to say. But in actual fact, you know, English is actually one of those languages where. Uh, you can get the gist of what people are saying. I spent quite a lot of time uh, learning French, apparently very inadequately when I try and use it working in France. Um, um, you know, it's an intolerant language, whereas English is an organic language. It's always changing. It's easy to communicate your ideas. If you are an artist, you can express yourself very much more clearly in just a few words rather than. And I think language and the fact that we're very uh, good-natured about language is actually helping us to grow as a country as a city. Uh, I'm a Londoner and I live up north now. Uh, nobody understands a word I say up there apparently. Uh, and, um, and I do miss it, the fact that we are very much more uh, engaging and open to listening to different languages. I mean in the context of the Olympics, it, it, all those things you mentioned that make London a, a great place to do business, time zone, language, etc. I mean, is this going to make the Olympics a particularly memorable one for everybody else around the world? I hope so. Translatable, <laughs> transmutable. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the one good thing is we're good at organising, yeah. we're really good at organising things. To some extent, we're over good. I mean, you've seen... None the, of that muddling through you were talking about. Nick. Well, you, you've seen, you know, that what was uh, the headlines in the papers today about the fact that civil servants are being asked to take seven weeks off work because they won't be able to get there. I think we overdo it. Um, I, uh, and we really do overdo it. And we're going to overdo it again when the Olympics, the week, the run-up and the week running up to the opening of the Olympics in the first few days will be absolute chaos. And I think the one thing we have to remember, uh, and I'm just as guilty of it in the events that I do, but we do have to remember that there are people that have to get on and do their day-to-day -day business as well as as well as supporting great events. And I do hope that, that um, we don't just overdo it at the beginning of the Olympics and just really turn people off, because it is going to be mayhem. You won't be able to get on certain roads, you can't get on certain into certain stations and so on and so forth, which is absolutely ridiculous. Everybody has to co-inhabit with each other. Um, what do you mean when you say overdo it? Well, because what they'll do is they will... I mean, I'm dealing with the... I'm dealing with the Jubilee celebrations at the moment, which are is a pretty complex network of events with no nobody really in charge of it, um, and tons of great people in the middle, and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And we have meetings called Pogs and Sogs or something that go on every Monday. And at the Pogs and Sogs meetings, there are people from transport and the police who, if they had their way, would shut every station. 
they just wouldn't so allow God forbid they'd allow people London. to go on the trains and move around they just shut them and that was always the traditional attitude and I think we're slowly learning through it and what the attitude so far towards the Olympics are and I remember sitting with the with the uh, mayor of Beijing and the chairman of the Chinese Olympic Committee when I asked him what he was going to do about the traffic as we were looking out of his top floor window with gridlock on this freeway that ran underneath it and he looked down and he said what traffic and <laughs> they dealt with it but here I think we're going to go out of our way just to make life impossible for the first few days and then it will settle down. Gwen, remember, remember we're a very very cautious uh, people and remember remember all the prophets of doom exactly like Harvey has just been talking about. On the millennium. Uh, the, 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 no not the, not the millennium the first morning of the congestion charge. Oh, yes, 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 Doom was predicted, yeah. and we all switched on our televisions and there was not a car on the road. So I think we are brilliant at organising things well. Uh, uh, don't get me wrong. And what that means is a royal wedding, a, a jubilee yeah. concert, an, an outdoor event. We are absolutely superb at doing that stuff. So I don't, I don't think you should be so negative about what surrounds the Olympics because I think it would be absolutely bonkers for London to do something as major as the Olympics without there being a big cultural festival uh, around that. And I think that will be a positive uh, outcome. But where we muddle through is in the big question of urban environment and creating public space. And that's where I feel we've got a lot more to do. And I think the other thing that we're very good at doing is talking things down. Yes. And actually, um, I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, the Olympic Stadium and all that, that park will be fantastically done. And um, the difficulty we've got at the moment, and I think it is a real difficulty if you're trying to run um, an organisation that opens every day, is being yes. told endlessly yeah. that you won't be able to get to work and yeah. tell, your, tell your staff to work at home. Well, I can't do that. I have to open the building. Yeah. And yeah. they've got to do it by 10 o'clock. So please, can someone tell me how to get there? And I suspect it will be fine. But the, 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 the doom mongers are telling you so much that you shouldn't do it. Don't get on the train. Don't do this. You know, I've got a map. I live near Greenwich and I, I work in Somerset House. And we, you know, apparently we're just going to be totally congested, and no one tells you what to do about it. That's frustrating. I think, frustrating. I think they're just managing expectations. Yes, it's not I mean, who wants to be told what to do. I'm actually a, a skeptic on the Olympics. I think we should have, when we won it, I think we should have given it to the French. <laughs> um, I, don't, I, I don't actually think. I don't actually think. You know, they. Could have, I don't actually think we need. We needed it. You know, all these things that are going on would have happened anyway. We could have had our cultural Olympians, you know, and you know, I've got my big final exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery in, in October, and you know, I think London will need it after the it hangover of the Olympics. <laughs> but the thing about the thing about the Olympics, remember why we got the um, Olympics. We got the Olympics because of legacy. So in terms of the the Olympics, whether they work or not, we're really not going to know for ten years. And which goes straight to the question of social cohesion. What is going to happen? In where the Olympics are in the, in the few months, what's going to be there, and who's going to be there in ten years? Well, I think you have to go back to. In fact, Michael Heseltine was the the prophet who really came up with the idea of pushing London back to the east, and he came up with that ages ago. And what ended up with uh, with Docklands, with the Enterprise Zone. And then with the Millennium Exhibition, the choice of Greenwich and the wonderful dome, which is now 
as it turned out, to be the most successful building in the world. Um, and all of that push east, the push of Excel, the development of all around there, the airport and so on, that's all part of that opening up the Eastern Corridor. So that legacy is already there because they've built it. And the one thing they have done is I I've, um, was taken around the park um, and spent quite a long time there. Um, and I'm highly impressed with the whole layout of the park, the whole idea of it, the notion. Um, the legacy, the future of what is going to happen in that park, um, to some extent, is unbelievably bogged down with idiotic bureaucracy. They're tendering out for the stadium at the moment. The tender is so complicated, as I explained to them, that no one's applied for it, so just extended the tender. Because you can't get your head around it, because a bunch of moronic lawyers that live around the corner from here have come up with such a complicated process that all of the creative and opportunistic and entrepreneurial people that would make use of those facilities can't because you have to hire a firm of lawyers, go back and get a new degree and spend, in our estimates, at least £60,000 just to fill the fucking document out. And that's how crazy we live. That's what's so terrible about London. That's what really annoys me more than anything else. They've done this fantastic job on building the opportunity. There is going to be a legacy because the legacy exists. They're trying to figure out the best of the people to do it. And then here comes the hurdle. Anybody that's got a great idea, anybody that's entrepreneurial, anybody that could actually fulfill and make use of that legacy can't jump over the hurdle because it's <coughs> completely nonsense. Built by lawyers, supported by great people doesn't work. We'll end up with something that will be a fiasco. Well, I think we've we've somehow ended on a low note, a down <laughs> note, but, but I think there were plenty of up notes during, during uh, uh, our uh, chat this morning. I'm going to pass this over to Julia, who will come and, um, ah, there you are, and who will uh, tell, tell you please to remain here for a few minutes because of what's going to happen next. Thank you. Well, uh, just to thank the panel, the marvellous panel and the marvellous chairs.